Hi, I'm Ellie Anderson. And I'm David Peña Guzman. Welcome to Overthink. The podcast where two friends who are also professors put philosophy in dialogue with the everyday. Because big ideas are within everyone's reach. David, one thing I've noticed a lot lately is that everybody is talking about performativity. I heard this a lot this summer with the term performative allyship, which I take it as basically the idea that a lot of people are trying to act like allies, say to the Black community in the wake of the BLM protests last summer, but they're not really doing so in an authentic way. Have you noticed this? Well, there was also that moment when the term was also used a lot in social media to talk about performative environmentalism, when we were having that debate about uh, whether or not we should be buying and using uh, plastic straws. Oh my God, do I remember? As somebody who lives in LA, this was yes, everywhere. Yes. It still is. Well, and then there were all these startups that started selling these metal straws that would be like on your keychain or hidden in your pen. So you could go somewhere and just like, oh, don't mind me. I'm just popping my metal straw out of my pocket. <laughs> Honestly, I think those are pretty cool. <laughs> well, but the point is that a lot of people notice a level of hypocrisy in the discourse of those who were calling for a ban on straws because as they were calling for a reduction in the consumption of straws, they didn't mind ordering takeout with like, you know, a thousand plastic boxes, etc. Oh my God. And so people were saying this is a kind of performative environmentalism that doesn't actually get at the root of the problem and doesn't actually offer solutions. So it's a kind of virtue signaling. I have to put myself on blast there because I order takeout a lot. Granted, it's the pandemic now. And so it's, you know, I'm ordering a lot more takeout than I ordinarily would. But also with the straw thing, I didn't own any straws prior to the straw debacle a couple of years ago. And then what did I do? I bought metal straws. And so I went from having no straws to metal straws, which is technically not more environmental because I just consumed something that I hadn't consumed before. I'm adding to my footprint. <laughs> yeah, it, it's such a millennial thing to buy into the latest trend, even when you didn't buy into the previous trend that it's replacing. Yes. And so I think performative environmentalism as a term is naming something, just as performative allyship as a term is naming something. But I have to say, as a philosopher, these terms bug me. I think they are actually just wrong because the term performative comes out of the discipline of philosophy and it doesn't mean what people think it means. It doesn't mean artificial. I just imagine you like following social media being like, oh yeah, for sure, but secretly boiling at the fact that you ah, think this term is being misused and holding it back, trying not to seem like that person <laughs> who's just going to philosophy explain the term. <laughs> well, there are ways that language is always in process. And I don't want to say that those in power determine the meanings of words. But at the same time, words do have given meanings and performative has a particular meaning that I think we want to hold on to. So for instance, I've heard the term optical allyship being used as a alternative to performative allyship. And I really like that term because I think that is getting at the way that a lot of supposed allies in the cause of racial justice or feminism are just doing so for the optics. That's designating the artificiality. But performativity doesn't mean well, that. Well, meanwhile, my partner, who is an ophthalmologist, is like sitting in the background being like, optics <laughs> does not mean that. Optics means something else. <laughs> 
God, okay, touche. I'll, I'll take that up with him. No, but I think you're pointing to something that I also relate to, which is that when certain terms that have very clear and very specific philosophical meaning or philosophical baggage attached to them get used in a way that is not attuned to that meaning or to that baggage, we have difficulty jumping on board because we only see the misapplication of the term. Exactly. And I think this is especially a problem with the concept of performativity because that concept is central to philosophy of gender, to philosophy of race, and to a number of elements of philosophy that are really trying to get at the oppressive structures in society. And so it's not just a debate about philosophical terminology. It's a debate about what we mean by terms, which I do think is important, but it's also a political debate on top of that and a debate about the efficacy of terms we have in our arsenal for resisting oppression. Yeah, and not to mention the philosophy of language, where the term comes from. And so maybe we can agree on a basic difference between performance and the more philosophically technical term performativity. Today we're talking about performativity. What does this concept mean? Where does it come from? And what can it tell us about things like pornography, hate speech, and gender? Let us discuss this subject imminently. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going to stop the recording now. <laughs> oh, no, but really, let's find out. So, David, what is performativity? Where does it come from? The concept of performativity is often traced to the writings of the English philosopher of language, J.L. Austin, who wrote a book entitled How to Do Things with Words, which came out in the 1960s. And in this book, he rejects the idea, which was quite popular at the time amongst professional philosophers of language like himself, that the sole function of language is truth. So most philosophers uh, at the time really believed that the only thing that was interesting about language, the only thing that was worth talking about from a philosophical standpoint is that it allows us to piece together or to string together words and concepts into sentences that are, as philosophers of language like to say, truth apt. That is to say, sentences that capture states of affairs in the world and that are either true or false. Something like Sacramento is the capital of California. Yeah, just basic descriptive statements that essentially deliver a little kernel of truth. And Austin says, no, actually, that's not the most interesting part of language because words are not just for speaking truth or for conveying truth value. There's a lot more that you can do with words. Enter the performative. Austin distinguishes different types of speech acts. So basically things we say. And he says that there's a particular kind of speech act called a performative, which actually brings about a state of affairs. This is in contrast with most of the things we say, which would be called constatives. A constative names an existing state of affairs. So the idea that Sacramento is the capital of California. But a performative actually brings about a new reality. This bringing forth captures the force of language, according to Austin, especially that force that other philosophers of language have not yet or had not yet in the 1960s understood. For example, when somebody says, I do, 
at the altar in the context of a marriage ceremony, Austin says, in the act of saying those two words, they're not just describing something. They're not referring to an external reality. They're actually doing something, something that is going to change their legal status, their political status. Suddenly they are married. And so the speech act is performative precisely in that it brings about a new reality. He also uses the example of betting. So Ellie, if I tell you, I bet you $10 that I can jump higher than you. In the act of saying those words, I've already enacted the act of betting, right? I've already made the bet. So it's not as if I talked about the bet and then later it became a reality. It became a reality through my speech act. And so the magic of the performative is that in uttering it, you are actually bringing a reality into being. But lest you think that this means that you can go around saying all sorts of things that are bringing new realities into being, (laughs) unfortunately, that's not the case. Performatives only work in particular contexts. And so if I say I do at a marriage ceremony, that's the appropriate context for that utterance to work as a performative. But if I'm just hanging out here in my closet recording a podcast and I say I do, I'm not suddenly married. That was not a successful performative. (laughs) She went to Jared. (laughs) (laughs) In addition to the appropriate context, the person who says a performative has to have the right authority. So for instance, if I say, I now pronounce you husband and wife to use the old heteronormative terms, I need to have the authority of actually being what, like a minister or something (laughs) in order for that to work. It is a failed performative if I just go to a wedding and as a guest yell that from the audience. <laughs> yeah, in, in connection to this example about pronouncing people X, Y, or Z or Christianing someone, uh, one of the most... Christening. Uh, uh, yeah. Christianing. <laughs> Same thing. It's christening somebody under a Christian ritual. <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess. Is that where the term comes from? Yeah, baptism. But maybe. I don't know. That was just... We should not say things on the podcast that are just like, I don't know, and leave it to our listeners to find out your authorities here but they're adorable when they are the effects when they're the effects of my ESL status they can stay <laughs> one of the examples that Austin writes about at length and that gets cited very frequently in the philosophy of language is the example of a captain who goes to a new ship and then takes a glass of champagne and breaks it against the stern and then says, I hereby name this ship Queen Elizabeth. In order for that performative to be a successful performative, well, the person has to be an actual admiral or a captain. Otherwise, it's a failed performative. But the point being that it gives birth to a new entity, in this case, Queen Elizabeth, the ship. And one last feature of performatives to mention in this context is that they have to be in the present active and indicative voice. So for instance, the ship's captain isn't saying, I named this ship Queen Elizabeth yesterday and now I'm just telling you. That's a constative, not a performative. So it's present and it's active, right? He's saying, I name this or I do. I now pronounce you man and wife. This concept of performative speech acts has been very important because it broadens our understanding of language beyond just the truth and falsity distinction and shows us how language actually acts on the world rather than just describing the world. And so if we wanted to use a metaphor, we can say that 
a lot of philosophers of language think of language as a mirror that reflects truth, but Austin thinks it's a hammer with which you do things. And so the question is, what can we do with this hammer? bearing with us as we talked about performativity in the technical sense in the philosophy of language. Now let's think about how performativity is used in different contexts, which are frankly pretty fascinating and juicy. So one way that it's been used is in law. The notion of the performative has been used to distinguish between what's covered and not covered by the First Amendment. For instance, if I yell fire in a crowded room, it's not covered by the First Amendment because yelling fire in the particular context of a room full of people has performative effects. It's going to cause people to run out of the room, to scream, have their adrenaline shoot up, etc. And at stake here is the perennial question among constitutional law scholars about which forms of speech really are simply free speech that can base a viewpoint about the world and which forms of speech actually produce harm. So for example, the feminist theorist Ray Langton has used the Austinian framework of performatives to talk about what is wrong with pornography, especially pornography that depicts uh, patriarchal images of women. So most of it. <laughs> uh, yeah, so like 99.9% of it. Um, and she says the argument that people make to defend this kind of porn is that, again, it's free speech. It simply expresses a worldview on the part of the director. But according to Langton, one of the things that people miss about pornography when they talk about it, especially in the context of whether or not it's covered under the First Amendment, is that people tend to interpret pornography purely as a constitutive. Yeah. Um, and not as a performative. Or even as fictional, right? Yes. Pornography achieves certain effects beyond what it represents. So it might tell a specific story, but the things that it does as an institution, as a social practice, go way beyond that because it has performative force. She develops this argument by pointing out that one of the things that we expect of language is that our speech acts will have their intended effect. So for example, Ellie, if you and I are going for a walk and then I say to you, stop, I don't want to keep walking, I expect you to stop, right? That's a very reasonable, basic assumption about social normativity in connection to language, that words have meaning and that that meaning will be respected by our interlocutors. Now, unless I'm just like an asshole, I'm like, David, not stopping for you. Yes, exactly. Unless you're an asshole or as we will see, unless the frame of reference for the meaning of terms has socially shifted which mm. is one of the performative effects of pornography, according to LinkedIn. Explain that to me a little bit. Super interesting, but I'm not sure I get it. It has to do with the ways in which pornography rewires men's desire, or rather conditions men's desire to reflect the desire that pornography itself represents. And so when mm. you think about what you see in pornography, what is it? Well, it's typically like bosses and secretaries, teachers and students, all these roles that have a very clear dominance dynamic and in which the subordinates knows never really mean no. 
In fact, they are yeah. kind of yeses. You know, they're invitations for further activity. Uh, <laughs> A.K.A. assault. Exactly. The problem is that pornography twists the meaning of the word no to mean yes. Yeah, it's like eroticized. Yes. And so when you live in a culture that is knee deep in the most misogynistic forms of pornography, men internalize the discursive worldview of the pornography they consume. And when they interact with women, the speech acts of women lose their normal performative force. In a pornographic culture, the woman says no, the man hears yes. Mm -hmm. And I think this is interesting because... It strikes me that there's a deviation from Austin's original use of the term performativity because something like yes or no or stop wouldn't be considered performative under a traditional Austinian framework. But I think the broader point here that Langton is getting at and deriving from Austin is precisely this idea that language doesn't just describe reality, but it has these effects. It has effects on bodies. It has effects on imaginations. It has effects on our wills. And here we see that the concept of performativity is really felicitous, to use one of Austin's favorite words, for describing things that go beyond specific speech acts, right? Yeah, and so I think it goes beyond in the sense that it's no longer merely about language in the traditional sense of utterances. Here we're talking about visual Mm -hmm. representations and entire narratives about sexuality and desire um, and, you know, a pizza man showing up and you not having enough change, etc. That's the the porn narrative that you're choosing to focus on. Well, I mean, that is like the (laughs) porn archetype, right? Like the pizza man. The pizza man and not having enough change? Yes. And then you have to pay them somehow. Oh, okay. I must have missed that one. Uh, And they don't have change. (laughs) So pornography does have all these other effects. And so we make a mistake when we interpret it merely as a viewpoint. It's again, it's a hammer that allows people to do things. And the feminist philosopher Rebecca Kukla has also used this framework to talk about many other ways in which, in general, women's utterances under conditions of patriarchy have less performative force than men's. Yes, there are so many possible directions one can take this in. And one that comes to mind here is discussions of hate speech. So we talked about the First Amendment earlier and how some things are protected by it and others aren't. Critical race theorists have used the conception of performativity to make sense of why hate speech shouldn't be protected by the First Amendment. Law professor at NYU Jeremy Waldron argues in his book, The Harm in Hate Speech, that hate speech is largely performative in exactly the sense that Austin means. So for instance, when somebody expresses animosity towards a group by playing on stereotypes, that doesn't just lead to a form of exclusion. It is a form of exclusion itself. Well, and I think for anyone uh, who has been subjected to a racist term or a pejorative or an insult, there is that sting that comes with it that traditional philosophies of language before Austin's intervention just couldn't make sense of because they would say, oh, well, language just either expresses a truth or it doesn't. And so it misses arguably some of the most important dimensions of our linguistic interactions with one another. And what's so interesting, too, about what you're describing, David, and the discussions around hate speech, 
is that they also show us that performatives don't just have effects on us as subjects. Performatives ultimately reveal to us the way that language has effects not only on ourselves, but also on the social world, on other people. And so far, we've talked about people who lift this Austinian conceptual framework to talk about different forms of speech or representation, whether that be hate speech or pornography. Like the pizza guy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but the queer theorist, Judith Butler, makes the argument that the Austinian notion of performative should be taken all the way to our sense of identity and our behavior. Who we are and what we do is performative. And I love this, and I'm so excited to talk about it. Enjoying this episode? Please rate and review Overthink on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So when you hear performativity today, you're most likely to hear it in contexts where people are talking about gender. And this is thanks to Judith Butler, who became famous for the term following the 1990 publication of her book, Gender Trouble. Butler uses performativity within the context of gender in order to say that gender is not something you are or something you have, but rather something you do. For Butler, Gender performativity means that gender is enacted. It's enacted through repeated movements and bodily styles in the world. It's not a core attribute of the person from birth. So gender is a doing and a becoming. And one thing that's really interesting here is that she's taking the Austinian notion of the performative, but she's really emphasizing the way that performativity in its strongest sense happens over time, through repetition, through habit formation, and through our very embodiment. Famously, she develops this argument about our becoming over time through iteration, largely through her reading of the writings of Simone de Beauvoir, the French existentialist. Who's famous for saying one is not born but becomes a woman. And also the German philosopher Hegel, who believed that there is no inherent or intrinsic human nature. Rather, uh, we are constantly changing and developing over time. And drawing from these thinkers, she lands on the position that gender is socially constructed. Yeah, one is not born but becomes a woman because you have to develop certain attributes of femininity over time and be recognized as a woman within a social context in order to count as a woman. And Butler, Beauvoir, and Hegel all share this idea that the human is a historical idea. And human attributes are also historical ideas. So gender and even sex are not intrinsic natural categories, but they are socially constructed over time. And this doesn't mean that they're fictional. It doesn't mean that gender isn't real, but it does mean that it has historical origins rather than natural ones. And the way we talk about this is to say that gender is socially constructed. And in thinking about the meaning of the thesis of social constructionism that lies at the root of Butler's approach to gender is the concept of mimesis, which means repetition or mimicry. And according to this concept, we perform gender largely by observing the behaviors of those around us and repeating those behaviors that are coded in particular ways when attached to particular bodies. 
And so we start learning social scripts about how to talk, how to behave, how to move and hold our bodies in order to be read as having a specific sex and a specific gender. Often when she writes about gender, she draws comparisons to the theatrical. It captures the fact that when we are beginning to learn these scripts, we sometimes are not very good at it. And so we either overshoot or undershoot the performance. So it takes time to learn the role. Think about a 12-year-old boy, right? Like hitting puberty. (laughs) Awkward! (laughs) Yeah, who starts walking in a ridiculously exaggerated masculine way, projecting more masculinity than they can possibly convey. (laughs) Um, You know, you see there the performance, but the performance that is not quite right. And so these performances of sex and gender are something that we have to be broken into over time. And this hits pretty close to home for me because I was obsessed with the movie Legally Blonde when I was 13 years old. And I literally copied Elle Woods's walk from that movie in my developing feminine persona. <laughs> I'm able to recall hundreds of important details at the drop of a hat. Hey, Elle, do you know what happened on Days of Our Lives yesterday? Why, yes, Margot, I do. Once again, we join Hope in the search for her identity. As you know, she's been brainwashed by the evil Stefano. I feel comfortable using legal jargon in everyday life. I object. (laughs) I think that movie really appealed to me because it was this apotheosis of femininity, but also she was smart. And so there was, you know, that kind of dimension. And I also really want to caution our listeners here in thinking about the theatrical as artifice or as performance, because Butler says that even though gender performativity is in some ways like a theatrical performance, it's also in other ways very, very different. Because a lot of times when people are performing, they're still positing a distinction between the actor and the role. For Butler, there is no distinction. You are your role. Performativity means that you are actually bringing about your identity in the process of producing it. That's what she takes from Austin. And so, for instance... I'm a former theater kid, as David knows. (laughs) And when I was in high school, I went to an all-girls high school. And I'm a cisgender woman. And when I was in high school, I had to play a man in one of the school plays. And in order to do that, I had to study typically masculine mannerisms. And so I learned to sit with my legs spread wide. I learned to hunch my shoulders more and kind of bring them up closer to my neck. I learned to take up more space and to hold my face in a different way, to smile less, because I was very serious about my acting in high school. (laughs) (laughs) But when I'm up there on stage dressed as a man, acting the role of a man, I am not doing what Butler calls gender performativity because I knew the whole time I was performing in that school play that I was a cisgender woman. There was a distinction between me and my character. However, when we are talking about performativity in the true sense, we are talking about actual repeated actions that are indistinguishable from your identity. Yeah, and I think this is a very important point, Ellie, because a number of people misinterpreted the publication of Gender Trouble along precisely these lines. So a number of people raised the question, oh, well, Butler, are you saying that that means I can choose my gender and my sex like one day and change it the next as if it's a costume or a prop that you use for an actual theatrical performance? And Butler says, no, that's a misunderstanding of what mimesis is, of that force of repetition that over time comes to you 
a second nature. And that blurs the line between the actor and the character. And she published a book later called Bodies That Matter, where in the introduction, she begins by clarifying this, where she says, no, I am not saying that you just choose a performance one day willy-nilly and you just discard it the next because they are much too rooted in us, in our behavior, in our bodies, in our understanding of ourselves to be so easily taken on or taken off. Precisely. And this is part of what bugs me about the terms like performative allyship and performative environmentalism that we began with, because there the term performative is used as a synonym for artificial or acted out. And that's exactly what is not going on in performativity. We are really creating our identities through performative actions. So other people recognize me as a woman based on my performative embodiment of femininity. That's an important point because it puts Butler in direct dialogue with Austin. Because remember that for Austin, in order for a performative speech act, like I promise or I hereby name this ship Queen Elizabeth, there have to be certain conventions in place. It has to be the right context. And Butler makes the argument that something similar happens in connection to gender, that there are conventions about what counts as femininity and masculinity. We don't choose them individually. Rather, we effectively perform our way into pre-existing conventions and in the act bring those about as a lived reality. One of the domains that Butler thinks is really interesting for showing gender performativity and how it goes beyond sheer performance or artifice is in drag culture. And she talks about the documentary from the 1990s called Paris is Burning in particular, which is about Black and Latinx ball culture in New York City in the 1980s. She says what you see in these drag performances is the performativity of all gender. So the drag performers are not just adopting a different gender identity for a moment. They are actually saying something really important about how all of us, whether you're cis, trans, queer, etc., are performing gender at all times. Yeah, it's like that saying that some people have as a magnet on their fridge. We're born naked and the rest is drag. That's Butler's thesis. Although for her, we're not even born naked because I'm already marked MRF on my birth certificate before I'm born. True, but you get the point that we come into this world and then everything that we do is performative in this stronger, more robust sense. And one of the things that Butler finds really interesting also about this documentary, Paris is Burning, and for our listeners who have not seen it, I highly recommend it. I've actually shown it to my students several times. Yeah, I taught it in philosophy of film. Is that what it highlights, what these drag performances and ballroom uh, displays of theatricality and gender and exuberance um, show us is also the inherent danger of playing with the boundaries of accepted scripts about gender. Yeah, because she says in this piece, uh, her article about Paris is Burning is called Gender is Burning, that in ball culture, folks of different gender identities are performing femininity. 
And Butler talks about the way that in doing so, they are citing the dominant norm, right? Through signifiers of femininity, like high heels, makeup, big hair, dresses. And for her, there's not something intrinsically subversive in citing the dominant norm. The simple presence of bodies who are not traditionally designated feminine embodying femininity doesn't automatically displace the norm. She says that actually things like ball culture can reinforce the dominant norm by reiterating it as the very desire of the subjects who are performing it. And so there's a complicated relationship here between embodiment, gender identity, and desire. Yeah, and I think the term complicated is exactly right, because another point that she makes is that there's an inherent ambiguity or a danger in these performances, because what you're doing is either reinforcing existing social norms about what women look like or what women are or men because in the documentary there are also performances of masculinity yeah yeah, but she also makes Mm -hmm. the claim that it can go the other way and it can be transgressive to the point of putting people who engage in those kinds of performances in danger precisely because in signifying socially accepted modes of femininity and masculinity, they also re-signify them. So they cite it, but then they tweak it. And that tweaking can be dangerous from a social standpoint. And do you mean, you mean it can be dangerous from the perspective of the dominant norm? It can serve to unsettle the binary between masculinity and femininity and its associated with sex and its associations with sex and gender? That's right. But I think, again, the point here is about ambiguity because it can go both ways, right? You can end up enforcing the status quo or you can disrupt it. And sometimes there's no way to know until after the fact. And so we see here that performativity itself is neither necessarily conservative nor necessarily disruptive, but has this ambivalence attached to it. Yeah, and there are two figures in the film that Butler writes about who exemplify this ambivalence. One of them is Venus Extravaganza, who is a 23-year-old Puerto Rican trans woman who appears in the film and is interviewed and talks about her life and her desires and wanting to get married. And you get the sense that in many ways Venus has, in fact, internalized this image of being a real woman, Mm. being read as such by those around her, and living that dream of having a husband who takes care of you and being essentially a stay-at-home wife. Yeah. I would like to be a spoiled, rich white girl. (laughs) They get what they want whenever they want it, and they don't have to really struggle with finances and nice things, nice clothes, and they don't have to have that as a problem. I want to be with the man I love. I want a nice home away from New York. I want to get married in church in white. I want to be a complete woman. And on the other hand, we have a character named Willie Ninja, who is a black ball performer. And the interesting thing, according to Butler, is that both Venus and Willy Ninja are signifying and re-signifying gender through their performances and their participation in ball culture. But the effects of that re-signification was not the same for both of them. Willy Ninja went on to become a famous dance choreographer and a model. He modeled for Jean-Paul Gaultier. He was a Paris Hilton's dance teacher. Oh my he God. was a guest. Yeah, like he really uh, rose to fame. He was uh, a guest on the on uh, Jimmy Kimmel Live, and in general, he became the public facing figure of ball culture in the 1990s. But 
On the other hand, Venus Extravaganza, this 23-year-old trans woman who, again, is playing with the same boundaries, pushing the same buttons about what acceptable social performances of gender are, was found murdered in a hotel in New York um, even before the documentary finished recording, before it finished shooting. And we don't know what happened, but the only theory that we've been left with is that she went to a hotel with a man who did not know that she was a trans woman and who murdered her upon finding out. And so Butler's point is that your performance of gender can either uphold the status quo or be transgressive. And if it's transgressive, you can either be rewarded for it or you can be punished for it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, you know, the highest form of punishment. And you cannot know that before the fact. Yeah. And so when you enter into these spaces of transgression, you enter into an ambivalent space. One of the critiques of Butler's theory of performativity, though, is that there are different stakes for different people and that different people's access to gender performativity that is transgressive is uneven. So for instance, I'm going to be read differently as a cisgender white woman and I might have greater access to subversive gender performance because of my white privilege than say a black woman. Yes, or even a woman performing masculinity is differently read than a man performing femininity because of the different values our culture attributes to those two ends of the most simplified version of the spectrum. And so we need to pay attention to all these asymmetries. And I think what we're seeing here is that the concept of performativity opens up so many discussions that are complicated and interesting and politically important about not only gender, but also identity and identity production. And so there's so much more to say here, which we don't have time for. But one thing to just say in closing is that I think it's really important to hold on to the complexities of this theory of performativity in order to preserve its richness, whether you agree with it or not. And for that reason, I would really caution folks against using performativity as a synonym for artificial, optical, or fake. And one point that I would want to bring up by way of conclusion is that for somebody like Butler in particular, it's not as if there is performance at the margins and nature at the center. Yes. So it's not as if these like Black and Latinx kids in New York and ball culture, which was at the time largely underground, now it's much more popular, especially when you think about mainstream drag uh, culture. It's not as if that's performance and the rest of us are over here doing the real thing. Everybody is performing gender. I am, you are, Mm -hmm. our listeners are, and all of those performances are equally performative in the sense that they bring about our identity as gendered subjects, even if the identities that they bring into existence are not on the same level on the political and social scale. Yeah. All right. Now back to episodes of Pose. Or the less interesting version of that. RuPaul's Drag Race. (laughs) We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can email us with questions, feedback, or even requests for live advice at dearoverthink at gmail.com. 
You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at overthink underscore pod. We want to thank Anna Koppelman, our production assistant, Samuel P.K. Smith for the original music, and Trevor Ames for our logo. Thanks so much for joining us today. 